Luke 24, 13 through 35. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, but they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish are you and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went to stay with them. When he was at the table with, him, with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Well, welcome once again, everybody. <clears throat> you know, I should know what we're praying. I'm the one that uploads it, chooses it. I should know. I have no idea. That's on me. <laughs> welcome, everybody. My name is Johnny. I am one of your pastors here at Missy, and it's really good to have you this morning. We are nearing the end of our 10-part series, our 10-week series, exploring the 10 parties that Jesus attends throughout the book of Luke that we've called Party Crasher. And I was reading some commentators this week, kind of getting ready for this message, and I saw one commentator say that Jesus eats his way through the gospel of Luke, which I thought was very fun. It had like a real gospel of eats, pray, love kind of vibe to me. That Jesus is eating his way through the book of Luke. And it is true. What we have seen is that Luke is comprised primarily of these meal stories. He just eats, parties, 
hosts meals, breaks bread. The whole story revolves around these crucial key meals. When Jesus gathers at the tables with his friends or with strangers, with the religious leaders, even those who are insiders and those who are outsiders. And what we have said throughout this whole conversation is that as we see Jesus at the table with these people, we are getting a glimpse, a picture, an image of what our God is like. These meals are not just fun texture or fun asides or fun details, though they are those things. They are the very central story that Jesus is telling. This is what he is up to in the world. When we see Jesus eat and hang out, we are getting pictures of what our God is like, what our God cares about, how our God works in the world, and what God is doing. I think one of the things that's so beautiful about Jesus is that he both tells us and shows us what he is up to. So he'll tell stories about parties, prodigal parties where they celebrate a lost younger brother or parties for sheep that have wandered or parties that are like kingly banquets. And those party stories make up a lot of Jesus' teachings, but then he doesn't leave it in the abstract. He then does the partying. Jesus tells stories about partying with prodigals, and then he himself parties with prodigals, both older brothers and younger alike. And then as we saw last week, Jesus tells these party stories, Jesus parties, and then Jesus is like, now go party like me. Last week we were in the Last Supper where Jesus invites the disciples around the table, breaks bread, and says, keep doing this meal in remembrance of me. Everywhere you go, everywhere you move, as you gather at people in homes and at businesses and in churches, do this meal. You've seen me practice it. Now live it out. Today, we are looking at the second to last party in the book of Luke. And of all the stories that we've seen so far, this might be the most intimate of those party stories. It's just three people around a table together. And despite being one of the most intimate or smallest, maybe most simple meals, it is one of the most profound meals, I think, throughout the book of Luke. This party comes after something earth-shattering, where faith and life is called into question for the disciples. They're wandering on the road and they have no idea what is true, what's going to happen next if Jesus is alive. And the party story precedes or follows that moment. And after this earth-shattering event in the life of the disciples, we see what Jesus does and how he walks and talks and eats and journeys with his friends into a rediscovery of himself. We see how Jesus walks alongside of his friends even as they question him. And we see how Jesus shows them his true purpose even as they doubt his very existence. And we see him reveal himself even as they struggle to recognize him. Missy, I think this story is so profound and so beautiful because it is an invitation into the same kind of rediscovery for us. 
The Emmaus story is not prescriptive. There's no formula here, so I don't want you to hear that. There's no formula that if you do these things, you'll have this kind of encounter with the person of Jesus. I don't think that's true. But I do think that in this story, we get to see an image of what God is like when we have experienced crises of faith. When the foundation of our theology feels like it is coming undone, when something painful or quieting or disquieting has occurred in our life that makes it hard to hold the center of our hope, we see how Jesus responds, and it is good news, especially to people who have often been shamed when doubt arises. To those who doubt, Jesus walks with gently. This is a picture of how our God walks, talks, eats, and journeys with the disciples and with us as we learn who he is and what he is up to. The story begins for us in Luke 24, verse 13. Here's what the text says. It says, On that same day, that same day being Easter Sunday, a lot of stuff just loaded into that very quick phrase. The story that has come right before this moment is Mary Magdalene and some of the other women have gone to the tomb. They've seen that Jesus is gone. Mary has actually had an encounter with Jesus. They've run to the disciples to tell them what's happening. The disciples, uh, because resurrection's crazy, are like, hold up a minute. Are you serious? And so they go to the tomb themselves, see that it is empty, and begin to wonder. What has happened? That's what it means by on that same day. So on that same day, when rumors of resurrection are beginning to percolate amongst the Jesus followers, two disciples were traveling to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. We don't know really who these two disciples are. In the text, one of them is named Cleopas. We don't know who that is. There's no other evidence of a Cleopas in the New Testament. Some New Testament scholars think that this person might be the same person that shows up in the Gospel of John who is named Clopas, and he shows up with his wife at the cross, and maybe they're like, maybe that's who we're talking about here, but we don't know. There's a Clopas, there's a Cleopas. Some disciples don't get names. That's rude, but that's how it is. We don't know. There's a lot of people who follow Jesus, and here we got two of them, uncertain. There are two disciples On the day when rumors of resurrection are beginning to spread, they are heading away from Jerusalem, which is interesting. Jerusalem has been the center of activity for the disciples. Jesus was crucified here. The rest of the disciples are here. This is the place where catastrophe occurred, but it's also the place where your friends are, your faith is. And they're heading away. We don't know why, the Bible doesn't answer that question, but I really like that we don't know why. Because I think sometimes the biblical writers leave a little gap in the text so that we can enter our own story into it. Like, why would I be leaving Jerusalem after Jesus was crucified? When have I left my friends or my faith or my foundation behind uncertain and unsure of where I'm going? We don't know. We don't know where they're going. Maybe they're just going to get some snacks seven miles away in Emmaus. Maybe Emmaus has a chip that's just to die for. I'm a comfort eater, so I could buy it. I could go a long way to get a pizza. So you have two disciples 
We're going to get nowhere if I keep doing this. We got two disciples heading towards Emmaus from Jerusalem when rumors of resurrection are percolating, and they were talking to each other about everything that had happened. Of course they are. This has been a weird couple of days. It has been a heavy couple of days. On Friday, Jesus was crucified. On Saturday, things were silent and dark. And on Sunday, you start to hear some rumors that Jesus might be alive, but you don't know what to do with that. That's hard to believe. It's easy today for us to be like, yeah, of course the disciples knew, but you just watched him die. And so you are talking about what happened, uncertain and unsure, heading away from Jerusalem. And it says, while they were discussing these things, Jesus himself arrived. What? And he joined them on their journey, but they were prevented from recognizing him, as one is. And he said to them, what are you talking about? They stopped, their faces downcast. I like this moment so much. Jesus arrives. They don't know what it is. Jesus somehow just magically appeared. He obviously knows what they're talking about, but he's like, hey, what are you guys talking about? Is it me? <laughs> they said to him, the things about Jesus of Nazareth. We are talking about you, stranger. Because of his powerful deeds and words, he was recognized by God and all the people as a prophet. But our chief priests and our leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. All these things happened just days ago. There's so many amazing little details in this story. But I think what is maybe most interesting is what they tell this stranger about their sadness, about the reason for feeling downcast and disappointed. Verse 21, they said, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Jesus' disciples had hoped he was the Messiah. Messiah is this like Hebrew term, this Old Testament prophecy about the chosen one, the hero who would come on Israel's behalf, restore them as a nation, rescue them from subjugation to Rome, and bring back the glory of a former Israel. That's where the hopes were, the expectations were. When they talked about Messiah, they thought of a king, they thought of a general, they thought of a politician, they thought of somebody riding like a royal horse entering to Jerusalem to reclaim the throne. And those expectations get a bit challenged with Jesus. He never seems to like riot or lead a mob or form an army, but they still hold these expectations within them all the way through the Jesus story. Even post this moment, the disciples will continue to ask Jesus, is this the moment that you're going to overthrow Rome and restore Israel? Like they, it takes a long time for this notion to get worked out of them. But here, they had hoped Jesus was the Messiah. They had expectations about Jesus, assumptions about Jesus, about what he was going to do, about what they thought he should do. And those expectations and those assumptions, that theology, it was shaped by their tradition, their culture, 
their family, the realities of the world around them. They wanted Jesus to wield a sword, build an army, conquer Rome. And maybe above all things, they wanted Jesus to live. Messiahs aren't supposed to die. At least, not to them. It's hard to imagine the story going well when your Messiah dies. Messiahs are not supposed to die. They are supposed to live. And so when Jesus did die, when he was crucified, the disciples' expectations and hopes fell apart. Their theology and their faith began to unravel. Either Jesus was not the Messiah or this Messiah is very different than we had expected. As these disciples are wandering on the road towards Emmaus, it is like they had lost something about Jesus, or maybe lost Jesus himself. Both the person, but also their ideas about him. On the road, we find the disciples in the midst of a very genuine, very real crisis of faith. What they believed and what they had hoped and what they had trusted in is coming undone as they walk. And they are leaving away from Jerusalem and the other disciples to who knows where, figuring out what to do with this untangling mess of beliefs and hopes and expectations and promises and traditions and culture. I'm going to say something that is maybe equal parts comforting and discomforting, so fair warning. This is a very common experience when it comes to following Jesus. It is a part of our faith journey. I think there are seasons for all of us in life that feel like this one. Sometimes it's because of what we have experienced, like the disciples. Something has shaken our faith. Some experience or some environment or some event has so rattled the foundations of our convictions that we wander away from Jerusalem, uncertain what to do with it all. Sometimes it's just because things get quiet. We're just uncertain what to do with that kind of quiet or disquiet. This has been true all throughout our faith history. In the Old Testament, into the New, Christian mystics of the desert period called it the dark night of the soul when things just felt dark and quiet. And that title is kind of misleading because it was never just one night, it was always many nights. Dark months of the soul. (laughs) years of the soul. I think in some ways, the more modern term for this is something like deconstruction. Something has gotten shook in us. Something has unrattled in us. Something is unraveling in us. The foundations, the assumptions, the expectations of our faith are coming undone. And we are not sure, like the disciples on this road, what will hold the center of it all together, if the center can be held at all. 
I bring this up for a couple of reasons. One, because I think it's just what's happening in the text. But first, because I want to name that this is an experience most of us probably already have had, will have, and then will have again. I don't say that to scare you or to frighten you or to frustrate you. In fact, I say it kind of to do the opposite, just to let you know that you are in good company. Jesus' disciples doubted his resurrection. They did. You can kick the tires a little too. (laughs) You are in good company. It is a part of the faith journey. And, And that leads to a second thing that I think is important. Faith crisis happens as we are on this journey. And I think something that is important to remember or to see is that it is these moments of quiet, these moments when God feels most distant, that it is often the moment God is doing something most substantial. I really like this story just because the disciples are like, Jesus is gone, and he's like, I'm walking literally right next to you. And I think this is true so often about our own faith experience. We feel distant from God and it feels quiet and that's because new life is being born. These moments of quiet, of deconstruction, of dark nights of the soul are often the moments where most life is produced in us or new life is produced in us, where renewal happens or reformation happens. That's what happens next for the disciples in this story. They have this journey with Jesus that enlarges and expands and deepens their understanding of Jesus. And as I was researching this, I'd come upon this story that I'd kind of forgotten about, about the very famous Protestant reformer Martin Luther, that right before the Reformation begins, he has this intense crisis of faith. Wonders who God is, if God is real, where forgiveness comes from, why all these things have happened. He has his own dark night of the soul journey, which then leads to his reformation experience. These moments can be a part of our faith journey, moments that are used by God to produce something new in us. But they are uncomfortable. They are painful sometimes. And part of the reason they can be so uncomfortable or so difficult is because something is being removed in us. The disciples had expectations and assumptions about Jesus that were in some cases untrue and in other cases too small. Jesus was, in a sense, going to redeem Israel, but he had got to get that sword out of their hands and mind. And that's a hard thing to learn. Despite everything he had said, despite all the teachings, despite all the instructions, despite all the miracles and the tables that we have seen and included diverse peoples, the disciples still struggled to get it. Their theology, their faith, their imagination was still too small for Jesus. And so to see what it is that Jesus was actually doing required some death, some unraveling, some deconstructing. 
a challenge to some of those foundational pieces and assumptions that they had held so that they could see what Jesus was actually doing. So the disciples, they're on the road, heading towards Emmaus, questioning their entire faith, theology, existence, wondering what has happened. What does Jesus do in response to their sadness and lost hope? Jesus walks with them. Even though they do not recognize him. Come on. What? Jesus walks with them even though they have no idea who he is. Jesus himself joins the disciples on their journey away from Jerusalem towards who knows where. As they question and unravel and experience crisis, he shows up and walks with them. They are lamenting Jesus, and he is like, hey, what's so, why are you so sad? And what I love about this moment, too, is that as the disciples are heading away from Jerusalem towards Emmaus, there is nothing in Emmaus for Jesus. The next story, he's back in Jerusalem. This is a really long detour. There's no errand to run. There's nothing to accomplish in Emmaus. There's no shopping mall that he's trying to get to. Maybe he wants the chips. I don't know. But it is not his end destination. Literally, the next story, he's back in Jerusalem. This is a detour to find some unknown, barely named disciples. The whole purpose of this journey is to meet them on the road, in their grief and in their doubt, even though they don't recognize him, even though they have no idea he's there. This is for them, to walk alongside of them, to be present with them. The story goes that Jesus shows up, he asks some questions, he does harass them a bit, which I love, and then he explains his story. But the thing that I can't shake the most about this moment is that Emmaus is seven miles from Jerusalem. We know that these two disciples were present when Mary returns, saying the tomb was empty. So most likely, they have just begun this journey. Jesus walks it all the way until Emmaus. Which means he walks on foot seven miles after resurrection. I would not do that. (laughs) Jesus walks all the way from Jerusalem to Emmaus. What What I can't shake about that kind of patience, that kind of journey, is just how unhurried Jesus is with the disciples. Jesus has a kind of unhurried patience that is hard for me to get my mind around. If this is me, I am not walking seven miles to anywhere. And all along the way, I am trying as hard as I can to get the disciples to see that it's me. Like I'm shaking now. I'm like, stop walking. Watch me turn this juice into wine. Let's go. Remember this one? <laughs> like I am trying to speed the process up to make it more efficient. I got places to be, things to do 
do life to bring? I don't have time to walk your butt all the way to Emmaus. Like, come on, wake up. But Jesus does. Jesus is unhurried. He moves slowly to walk with his friends. There's a quote that I want to read you from a book called The Three Mile an Hour God that I think is just very beautiful. The author, Koyama, says this, God walks slowly because he is love. If he is not love, he would have gone much faster. But love has its own speed, its inner speed. It is a spiritual speed. It is a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we are accustomed. It is the speed we walk. Therefore, it is the speed the love of God walks. Jesus walks with his friends at the speed of love, moving as fast as they do through their questions and their uncertainty and their anxieties and their grief and their crisis of faith. Jesus moves at their speed. He doesn't say get over it. He doesn't rush their questions. He doesn't rush their uncertainty. He moves at their speed. This is so comforting and challenging to me. It's comforting because I am like these disciples. I am often very slow to see or to believe or to trust. And when I'm not like them, I am quick to rush, to hurry, to demand efficiency. But Jesus moves alongside of the disciples and me and you unhurriedly even when I do not recognize that he is there. And he invites me and you to do the same. To walk alongside of one another unhurriedly. As the three reach Emmaus, Jesus acts. This is what the text is. He acts like he, got, he has to go on. She's like, where are you going, Jesus? <laughs> what do you have to do? She's being kind of coy. And so the disciples urge him to stay for dinner. And as we know, Jesus cannot refuse a good invitation, so he stays to be with them. Disciples are like, hey, would you hang out? And he's like, of course I would. And it says, verse 30 through 31, after he took his seat at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. But he disappeared. The disciples walked with Jesus as he explained his story. They did not recognize him. Seven miles. Moving unhurriedly at their own pace, and they did not recognize him. But here, around a table, 
Jesus breaks the bread and shares it with his disciples. Idioms for sharing a meal together. When he shares a meal with his friends, a thing they've done hundreds of times together, then their eyes were opened. Huh. I've been thinking about this moment all week and just wondering why. Like, why this moment? I mean, it's beautiful and it's poetic. It's a great way to, like, come to the end of a series about parties. But, like, why is this the moment that disciples see? Why is it not when he's walking with them? Why is it not when he's like, here's how the whole story comes to a conclusion in me? Like, why does none of those moments? It says they were burning in their chest. Their hearts were, like, on fire, but they don't see. Why this moment? And I don't know if this is true. This is, this is what I think. But I think at the bottom of their crisis, at the bottom of their questions and at the bottom of the experience they were having, at the bottom of the wrestle, was a question about presence. They feared they had lost Jesus. That their friend, their teacher, their Messiah the one they loved and hoped and they feared that he was gone. And so Jesus meets them. He is present when presence is what they are afraid they've lost. And in the slow walk from Jerusalem and the rhythm of a shared meal, one that they have done many times with Jesus, they see. As Jesus is present, they see. And not only do they see Jesus, but what he said begins to make sense. It is through this intimate relational meeting with Jesus at the table in this party over a meal that his explanations, the facts, the story begins to come to life. And I think that is worth paying attention to. That it is the love and presence of Jesus that makes the story of God make any sense. The next thing that happens, verse 33 through 35, Jesus disappears. It's real David Blaine of the New Testament. (laughs) They got up right then and returned to Jerusalem. Run home, seven miles. And they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying to each other, the Lord really has risen and he appeared to Simon. We missed that part of the story. You'll get there. Then two disciples described what happened along the road and how Jesus was made known to them as he broke the bread. The disciples have this encounter with Jesus. They rush back to Jerusalem, the center of their initial faith crisis. There's probably something there to work on. And then they begin to tell their story. Their gospel story, their good news of how they've encountered and experienced the living Jesus, how he met them on the road and was revealed in the presence and fellowship of the table. I love that as the conclusion to this moment. 
Because I think it is often how the Christian life looks. Is it a part of the faith crisis and the loss of our hopes and center as that gets unraveled and unwound for us? There is an invitation to walk with Jesus who is unhurried and patient, to encounter him in the faithful consistency of his goodness, to see him anew, living at the table, and then to go and to tell our story, to witness to what we have experienced and seen. These moments, as hard and as strange as they are, these faith crises, these unravelings, as hard and as strange as they are, are often what shape our own story. They are what form us into witnesses who declare the gospel as we know it, which is a different kind of declaration. You can declare truth in an abstract sense, but what the disciples here are declaring is a lived experience. Look what we saw. Look what we know to be true. It forms us into witnesses who declare the gospel experienced in us, and it gives us the grace and the patience to move like Jesus, unhurriedly alongside of one another, learning how to be present, patient, until love and goodness are revealed as truth. Monsieur, that is the invitation of the Emmaus story. To know that Jesus moves unhurried with us. He meets us at the table. He will send us to tell that story. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this story. I think this week it has been speaking hope and comfort to me. It feels like grace to me to know that you move at the speed of love alongside of me. That you walk with me even as we venture away from Jerusalem. That you unravel your story and explain your presence and your purpose, and then you meet me in faithfulness and goodness again and again until I can finally see the truth. God, would that be true today for us as we gather at the table? Would you meet us here? Would you be present to us? And then would you send us out of this place, witnesses to the faithfulness of you, who, like you, move unhurried alongside of one another? present until presence reveals the truth. You are alive and with us. In your wonderful name we pray. Amen.